chapter 5. Matthew is the first of the New Testament books, the first of the Gospels. We have begun a series last Sunday, which will carry us all the way into the first part of December. It is actually a series that is called Counterculture Living, Living God's Way in a Godless Society. I don't think I have to hammer away at the fact that you probably all realize we're living in a very godless society. And to live for Jesus, to stand for Him, and to show our true colors as believers, for many it becomes very difficult. Jesus preached a sermon in a tremendous way, and as we open it up, I trust that you'll see over the course of the next number of weeks that every bit of what Jesus shares in this sermon goes contrary against the grain of the society that we live in. Look here, if you will, at Matthew chapter 5, verse number 5. I'm going to read two verses here. The Bible says here in verse number 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Today I'd like to talk about blessings come to those with the right approach. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment in time that you've ordained for us to be gathered together. Everyone's here that needs to hear this message. And Lord, this is a unique group, never probably in the rest of the history of Calvary Baptist will this particular group meet just like this. Each man, each woman, each teen, each young person. And I pray that we would be attentive to the Word of God. Help us not to focus on the preacher, but what is preached. Help us not to think about anything else, but that which you have for us today. Guide us, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we introduced a series uh, which covers a sermon that was preached by the Lord Jesus Christ. I did make mention of the fact, and I think it's very important to understand, this sermon that Jesus preached is not a patty cake sermon. It is a sermon that actually gets below the surface and deals with Christianity in real terms. Now, what I find amazing about this sermon is how the message was received by the people who heard it. In fact, hold your place here. Just go over two chapters to chapter number 7. And I want you to notice here what took place in this sermon at the conclusion. Look at chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not at the, as the scribes. Here the scriptures tell us the reaction of the people, and it uses the word here that they were astonished. The word astonished literally means to strike out of one's senses. It means to be dumbfounded or to be amazed. And their amazement came because Jesus did not teach 
like the scribes taught. I believe that what Jesus said and how Jesus said it really affected them. In fact, the great preacher from well over 100 years ago, C.H. Spurgeon, put it this way about these two verses. He said, two things surprised them, the substance of his teaching and the manner of it. They had never heard such doctrine before. The precepts which he had given were quite new to their thoughts, but their main astonishment was at his manner. There was a certainty, a power, a weight about it, such as had never been seen. And I find something today with people all over in our culture. Sure, we're living in a godless society. We're living in a society where people don't really want to hear much about Jesus Christ But I do believe that whether people are born again or they're unsaved, people are looking for substance. They want to know that there is something genuine about you, that there's something authentic. Because all over this world, there truly is a superficiality. There is a hypocrisy. I don't care whether you go to the political world, the sports world, The business world, and yes, the religious world, sadly, in many parts of those worlds, there is a hypocrisy. And when Jesus preached this message, the people were astonished because they said, no man ever spake like this man before. So with this sermon in mind, how effective it was and how important it was, I want you to note here that in these first few verses of of this sermon, Jesus dictates the parameters for those that are part of his kingdom. And second of all, he lists here those who are part of it will actually be different. Their words will carry authority. Their life will be one of moral authority. Those who come to Jesus on His terms will find them, as the word is used, blessed. They're happy, truly, truly happy. Today we're going to move on to these third and fourth Beatitudes, as they're called, or the blessed statements. And I want you to notice the right approach that Jesus is looking for. In other words, What manner is it that I should come to the Lord Jesus and seek to live my life? First approach, number one, is this out of verse number five. Those who are humble will gain. Those who are humble will gain. Now, the word humble is not used. In fact, in your King James Bible, it is the word meek or meekness here. And let me give an explanation of meekness. Ultimately, meekness could be equated in part with the word humility, but I want you to recognize that it is much more than humility. It is really, the word meekness is a balance between anger and apathy. In other words, when we speak here about being humble, we might speak about someone being humble in relation to another person. Oh, that person was very humble in how he approached that person. This person had a humility about them. But I want you to notice that when meekness carries in this idea of humility, 
The meekness is a humility in the face of problems, not people. It is a humility in the light of circumstances, not before the crowd. The great commentator by the last name of Barnes put it so well in describing meekness. He said, and I quote, meekness is patience in the reception of injuries. Another way to explain this word meekness might be to add the word gentleness. It is a humility, if you will, that is gentle in regards to the situations of life. The word picture of meekness is very powerful. If you were to understand this word picture, it might explain it all. If I were to go out to a particular field and there was an animal that had not been tamed and over the course of time I went through and tamed that horse, let's say, and I took the strength of that horse and I tamed him and I made him to where he could be somebody that people could come and pet and people could ride that horse, that horse's strength doesn't change. That horse's demeanor is still the same, but now that strength has been brought under control. And that's what meekness is. Meekness doesn't mean that there's no power. It is a power that is under control. And so here, this is the example, uh, the explanation of meekness. But now I want you to notice the examples of meekness, the examples. People sometimes when they talk about meekness, they will equate meekness with meekness. You know, the common factor is that meek people are weak people who cannot defend themselves. People say meekness is weakness, but I'm telling you, they're not synonyms here. Because as we'll see in some of the biblical examples, there is a difference in these people. For instance, notice here the man Moses. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 12, verse number 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Imagine that. Giving a description of Moses saying that he was the meekest man at that time that he lived on the earth. That aspect of meekness was demonstrated in this same chapter when his own brother and his own sister, Aaron and Miriam, complained about Moses. In fact, Miriam kind of incited Aaron to join her in the racial prejudice against Moses because of the wife that he had married. This was done all despite the fact of all that Moses had done. Now, I want you to think about Moses for just a moment. Moses is a man that was raised up in the palace of Egypt, had learned, just like all the wonderful people there in the palace, had received a tremendous education. Sure, he had been uh, booted out of the land of Egypt, found himself for 40 years on the backside of the wilderness, but God had called him. In fact, God had come to him very specifically through a burning bush. God spoke to him and said, Moses, I want you to go back to the land of Egypt, and I want you to lead my people out and bring them to the promised land. That man, Moses, went back and, and showed himself to the people of Israel. He stood before Pharaoh and he began to talk to Pharaoh about how God wanted his people to leave. And Pharaoh began to argue about these people not leaving. 
Sure enough, God begins to speak through Moses, not only verbally giving him the words, but God begins to use Moses in a mighty way to bring ten powerful statements through nature to let the people know, especially Pharaoh, that the God of heaven is the only God that is to be served. Now that's the Moses The man that had brought up in the palace of Egypt, the man that had come with the ten plagues of Egypt, that man Miriam and Aaron are complaining against. And Moses could have said to his brother and sister, I could squash you like a bug. If I just asked God for a minute, I could say, hey God, with a snap of my finger, would you strike them with lightning? I'm telling you, Moses could have done that. But Moses had that power under control. Meekness. Think with me about another man who was meek. The Bible talks about the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls. I'm telling you, Jesus demonstrated meekness when he rode into Jerusalem on that day. And he rode not on a triumphant, white, brilliant horse, but he rode in on a donkey. I'm quite sure that surprised a lot of the people. I'm quite sure as the people looked at him, they said, now wait a minute, Jesus riding on a donkey? I mean, is this the Messiah that we're looking for? Is this the one that is going to take over and rule over the Roman government and bring us to a place of power? And yet Jesus is riding in on a lowly donkey? But it's that same meek Jesus who not only rode in that day on such a lowly animal, but it is that same Jesus who went through the crucifixion trial and stood before Pilate and was beaten by the swords and yet did not answer a single word. I love it when Pilate was standing before Jesus. And he's asking Jesus questions and Jesus is silent before him. And Pilate basically says, do you not understand who I am? I can have you put in prison. I can have you crucified. And I love what Jesus said. You could have no power at all if it were not given by God himself. Jesus stood before Pilate and he was there on that cross and was mocked by those people and was beaten beyond recognition. And I love the song that we sing, the wonderful hymn that talks about how he could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him. But he didn't. Meekness. That's the word that is being used here in this passage. Demonstrated by Moses. Exemplified by the Lord Jesus Christ. But now notice, if you will, the evidence of meekness. There needs to be an evidence in our lives. Because Jesus is giving this sermon to the people listening to him, but ultimately to you and I here today, that you and I are blessed if we follow in this attitude and this approach that we are meek before God and in the midst of our circumstances. You know, it's one thing for it to be seen in scriptures. Oh yeah, Jesus was meek. That's good. That was good for him. That was good for Moses. But me, 
Preacher, you don't understand what I go through. You don't understand the injuries that I face. You don't understand the problems that I have. You don't understand what goes on in my life. Well, I want to tell you something. If you are a born-again believer today, do you realize, according to Galatians chapter 5, that God is desiring to produce fruit in your life? And do you know one of the evidences of the fruit of the Spirit is the word meekness? Do you realize today that as you're growing in the things of God, God is desiring to produce in you that meekness? In the midst of injury, in the midst of troubling circumstances, in the midst of somebody saying something against you, it is that attitude and that approach that, Lord, I could go ahead and take care of this. I could lash back. I could say something, but Lord... I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to produce meekness in me. How is that meekness evidenced? Well, let me give you a couple of different thoughts here for just a moment in our lives. James chapter 1 verse 21, the Bible says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That sounds pretty naughty, doesn't it? I don't, that whole superfluity of naughtiness. But notice this, it says, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Notice here the evidence of meekness. There is, it is evidenced in the reception of the word of God. Do you know how you're to receive the word of God? The Bible says with meekness. Now today you can go ahead and practice this. You can practice receiving the word of God with meekness. How so? Don't argue with the word of God as it's given to you. Honor the Word of God as it is preached. You see, there's a lot of times when we hear the Word of God, and I've heard it said, whether I've preached or other people have preached, oh, that preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. I can't believe he read that verse. That verse, I I, I, I know that may be for somebody else, but that's not for me. And what you do is you don't receive the Word of God as it is given unto you. The Bible says that you are to receive it. And I'll tell you one reason why it's important to be under the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night is so you can receive the Word of God. How much it is. Look, it's imperative that you read the Word of God on your own. But it's also imperative that you hear the Word of God. You see, we're going to study out the things that we want to study out that appeal to us. We're going to want to get into the Word of God and let it help us in the areas that we feel pertain to our lives. But woe unto us when we sit under the pulpit and the preacher comes through with a two-edged sword, the Word of God. And he starts cutting through. And he starts hammering away at something that's in our life. And the preacher begins sharing, not his opinion, not his thoughts, but the Word of God. And my friend, if you're going to go ahead and take that and apply it to your life, you know how you've got to receive it? I'm not angry about it. I'm taking it in as God has given it to me. I'm receiving it with meekness. That's one evidence. Another evidence is this, the restoration of fellow believers. Meekness is involved in helping to restore others who have fallen in sin. Listen to this verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, it's talking to believers, if a man be overtaken in a fault. 
Now, this, this is, could be whether this man actually went into sin knowing what he was doing or somehow he fell and didn't realize what was going on. He was tempted. You know what you're to do with that man? The Bible says, ye which are spiritual. And that doesn't mean those that are just white-headed and, and they're the most godly people in the world. The word spiritual has this idea of you that are led by the Spirit of God. You know what you're to do? Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. All of us have known somebody in our family, in our church family, Christians that we've been associated with, somebody who has fallen in sin. You know what I hear invariably? Well, that person knew better. I'd never do that. You know, we start talking from this judgmental place. Can I say to you that if we're to restore a one in the spirit of weakness, or meekness, I'm sorry, there is an atmosphere where there's no blame. It is one where the lecture is not given it is one that comes through realizing that there go I, but by the grace of God. And here I am. I want to help people. My desire for Calvary Baptist Church is that this church becomes a place not where people are perfect because wherever a person comes in, it all of a sudden ruins that atmosphere. There is no perfect church. But how important it is that when people do fall, that the people of this church rally around and try to help those who have fallen, doing it in the spirit of meekness. You know how else meekness is evidenced in your life? It is the release of wrongdoings. Ephesians 4.2, the Bible says, With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Forgiving. Forgiving. How am I to forgive others? I'm to do it in meekness. You know, our attitude sometimes is, well, you, preacher, you, you just don't understand how they've hurt me. Or maybe you're coming back with this sense of revenge and you're like, all right, I, I'm going to get back at this person. I'm going to make sure that they pay for what they did to me. I'm telling you, meekness is power under control. It is the aspect of, yes, you could go ahead and seek your revenge, but you don't. And you willingly forgive. You release the wrong that is there. This quality of life of being meek here is simply an acceptance that no matter what comes about in your life, you take it as from God and don't fight against it. Now look at the promise here. Look at the estate of those who are meek. Look at this. Blessed are the meek, look, for they shall inherit the earth. Now if you took time to really study your Bible out in the Old Testament, here's what you'd find about the meek. They actually were very powerless. Meek people rarely owned property. Most of the time they were exploited by other people. They had nobody around to actually help them get further along in this life. 
And yet the one thing that the meek lacked, Jesus promised to them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now I want you to notice that when Jesus is giving this, there is a promise here of a far away blessing and also a near blessing, if you will. The far away blessing, whether it be for the Old Testament Israelite or for you and I that are believers today in this New Testament era, can I say to you that there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will come and rule and reign on this earth. This earth will be remade and you and I who will reign with Christ will own it all. Now that's good stuff. Because right now, some of you are going through, you want to own it right now. You're fighting the whole system. You're fighting through things. You're bucking against everything. And you want your rights. And you want your possessions. And you want this. And I'm telling you, there's nothing wrong with pursuing things in the right manner. But my friend, in the place of injury, in the place of problems and trials, can I say, a meek person steps back and says, you know what, they can have it all right now. I'm trusting the Lord because someday I'm going to be with Him and I'm going to own all this as it is. That's the beauty of the Christian life. But I want to tell you there's something very spiritual that is uplifting And that is not so much of a physical property that we may own, but I want to tell you something. Those in the face of injury and hurt and mockery and problems who come before God and are meek, guess what they'll find? Peace. Joy. They'll find the satisfaction in Christ. Boy, I meet a lot of Christians that are fighting for their rights. Fighting for themselves. Their own good. My friend, I want to tell you, you're not here for your glory. You're here for God's glory. The blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Notice now, verse number 6, this second approach that we ought to make is those who yearn to know God will find satisfaction. Those who yearn to know God will find satisfaction. Now, let me describe this idea of, notice in verse number 6, Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let me describe this hungering and thirsting. This hungering and thirsting is like a strong desire, a motivating spirit. I want to tell you, you look all around this world, there are people who are hungry for certain things. They've got a motivation. Look at the politicians. They'll trample over anybody to get into an office. Look at sports figures. They'll deny their body. They'll do anything they can to get to the intended goal of being on a particular team or achieving a particular medal. All around our world, we find people that are hungering and thirsting. That is, they're motivated for something of this world. But Jesus didn't bring up anything about this world. He didn't say, I want you to hunger and thirst after the business world. 
I want you to hunger and thirst after the politics of Rome. He didn't say, I want you to hunger and thirst after the sports athletes. He said, I want you to understand that those who are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, describing righteousness, defining it is very important. Notice the definition of righteousness. There's many people that don't understand the word righteousness. It's amazing that it's only used three other times in the other three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John. Jews seven times in the book of Matthew, five of those times are used right in this sermon that Jesus preached, righteousness. We know that it has something to do with right, and in fact, that's very honorable to bring about that definition. But I want to tell you what righteousness is. When Jesus said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, it is not right as we think right should be. It is not right as in, well, that's the way I was brought up. It's not right as in, well, this is what I've been taught from this particular educator. My friend, I want to tell you something. The pattern of life for you to live is a conformity to God and His Word. That's righteousness. You see, the standard of righteousness is God. It's not you. It's not anybody else. And when I think about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, can I say that this comes in two different aspects? Number one, there is a salvation hunger. Listen to these two verses, and let me explain for just a moment. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. John 4, 14, Speaking to the woman at the well, he said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the waters that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. When Jesus was speaking in John chapter 6, he was implying that there were people that were searching in this life for something that would satisfy them. When Jesus was meeting in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, here's a woman that had been through every aspect of this life. She had been through marriages. She had been through all sorts of things in her life, and she was still unsatisfied. She's searching for something to fill the void in her life. And there's Jesus, the bread of life, the very water standing before her. And I tell you, when that woman at the well found out who really Jesus was and placed her faith in him, she couldn't help but go to everybody she knew and said, I found him. I've found somebody who's answered all my questions. And I want to tell you, as you go through this life, you probably meet them. Neighbors, friends, family, they have questions about life. Where am I going to go when I die? Is there life after death? They have all sorts of questions about life itself and about how they're made and why they're made and the purpose of this life. Many times we find that there are people that are trying to fill this void in their life. There is a void there, and I'm telling you, the only way that void can be filled is when Jesus comes into your life. And many people are trying to fill the void with substance abuse. 
They're trying to fill the void with relationships. They're trying to fill the void with possessions. They're trying to fill the void with fame. And I'm telling you, you go all this world around and there are many people, no matter what they've accumulated in this life, no matter what they've attained to, there's still this gnawing sense of emptiness. And that's why Jesus has appeared as the bread of life. That's why there is an everlasting water that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something, that the day that I got saved, I ran from Jesus as a teenager. I just want to tell you that. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents got saved when I was very young. And I, I, I got saved at an early age and made a profession of faith and was in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I felt like we slept there. I felt like we ought to bring our bed and our pillows to church because we were there all the time. But I got to my teenage years and I started looking around at the way my neighbors and schoolmates were living. I thought, you know what, I, I want that instead. And from about the age of 12 years old all the way to close to 18 years old, I ran from God. I tried to fill my life with everything I could of this life. And you know what I realized close to 18? Nothing in this world satisfied. Nothing. That day that I got down and I knelt beside that bed, and I asked the Lord Jesus to forgive me of all my sins and become my personal Savior. What an amazing thing took place. Jesus filled that void. There was a satisfaction. The hunger that I had was filled. The thirst, it was taken care of. And I want to say to you that those of you that are here today that are searching for something in this life, you don't yet know Jesus Christ. You don't know if you're going to heaven when you die. There, you don't have a relationship with Christ right now. Can I say that the only thing that will satisfy you is a relationship with Christ? But you know, there's a salvation hunger, but there's a Christian life hunger. Just because you get saved doesn't mean that all of a sudden you sit back and go, well, I got everything I need right now. No, as a believer now, you pursue after the things of God. It's amazing as you look to the Scriptures and how many different action words are used to describe our Christian life and what it should be like. Think of these words. Desire. Taste and see. Be attentive to, hearken, heed, receive, grow. Do those words describe you? Or are you here today because your spouse dragged you to church? Are you here today because you just have nothing better to do on Sunday morning? Are you here today because, yeah, you were taught that way as a kid and you're just kind of doing it out of duty? I'll tell you something, there's a lot of people sitting in church pews, not just here, but across the world, who are here that are not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I think the things that we ought to hunger and thirst for are things like the Bible. Do you hunger to get into the Word of God? Or does this book sit on the coffee table and collect dust during the week? Do you hunger to properly deal with sin in your life? Or do you let things just kind of fester? 
Do you hunger and thirst to have a dynamic prayer life where you spend time talking with God? Do you hunger and thirst to fellowship with other believers? Let me tell you, there is a meeting times that we have gathered together and there is an opportunity if you hunger and thirst to be around believers. But I want you to note something. There's a lot of people that are here that are spiritually, they have no appetite for the things of God, similar to people who physically have no appetite. I've known people who have gone through depressing times and have no appetite to eat. They begin losing weight. becomes evident in their life. As a pastor, I've been with many people who are in their last days and weeks and all of a sudden they'll decide they don't want to eat anymore or they really have no appetite and eat very little. And with no food, you understand, and no water, a person's life will be gone. There are those that are in the process of dying, have no desire to eat. And the same is true spiritually. When you and I no longer hunger and thirst for time alone with God, when we no longer uh, thirst and hunger for the commitment to worship, when there is no alarm about sin in our life, then I'm telling you, you're spiritually sick today. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness notice the delight of those who follow in this way. Here's the promise. They shall be filled. Have you ever gone to a restaurant so hungry and you've eaten your fill and you get up and you go, wow, I need a wheelchair to get me out of here. You filled yourself. You've gone in hungry, thinking to yourself, I'm so hungry I could eat anything. And then you eat to your heart's content. And you're filled. Do you know there's a delight to those who will come after God? He says they'll be filled. I love this word filled. It's a very interesting word. It refers to the feeding, the filling, and the fattening of animals. The same word is used in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. When Jesus fed the 5,000, I love this. Imagine with me for just a moment. They each take a substance. They eat it. The Bible says in Matthew 12, they ate it and were filled. Wow. Pretty amazing. When you follow God, God will delight to satisfy you, to fill you. I love Psalm 3410, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Psalm 84 verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm 37 verses 3 and 4, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, He shall bring it to pass. Can I say to you today, could I just put it in these simple terms? If you want it, God will give it to you. 
If you want a close walk with God, you can have it. If you want to do God's will, you'll be able to. If you desire to grow spiritually, you will. If you can, uh, if you, you can uh, break destructive habits, if, if you have the desire to break those destructive habits, God will help you. If you can become the person that God wants you to be and you desire that, can I say that God will answer that need for you? What's the need of your heart today, Christian? What's God doing? God's desiring to do something. Please notice these statements here that I've given not only today in verses 5 and 6, but verses 3 and 4. There's actually a progression in these statements. Notice here it starts off a little on a sour note, a little negative. That is that we're to be uh, humble in spirit, broken in spirit, if you will. The poor in spirit. And it results here in mourning. But notice what we went over today, a little bit more of a positive sense. If you're meek, it's going to result in you seeking righteousness. Question for you today. Do you seek to be right with God? I love this little story. Back in the mid-1800s, there was a young man in England who desired to be right with God. He later wrote, that he was miserable. He said, I wanted to know how I could be rid of my sins and be saved. He said, I was willing to do anything and be anything if God would only forgive me. So in desperation, this young man went around to every church in the area of which he lived trying to find out how to be saved. He said he went to one church, the pastor preached on the sovereignty of God, but he didn't preach about how to be saved. He went to another church, and that preacher preached about the keeping of the law, but not how to be forgiven if you broke the law. Another pastor preached a very practical message about how to live, but did not tell people how to be saved. So out of desperation, this young man continued searching, going to every church that he could to find out how to be right with God. Finally, one Sunday morning, he set off to go to another church, But lo and behold, a major snowstorm came through. In fact, the church that he intended to go to closed. But in his spiritual hunger, he kept looking for a church that might be open, and he stopped at a little primitive Methodist chapel. It wasn't really even a church per se, it was just a chapel. The snowstorm was so bad that the preacher actually couldn't even get out to the chapel that day. The man who preached wasn't even a minister. And when he got up to preach, he only preached about 10 minutes, and he couldn't even pronounce all the words right. But this unimpressive man, standing at the pulpit, preached from Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The lowly preacher said, this is a simple text. It doesn't take effort on your part. It is just, look to me. He said, as this young man quoted it, you don't have to be rich or a great man. Just look to me. And he said, it's not looking to yourself, not how bad your sins are or how good you are. Look to me. Look to Christ, to what Jesus did on the cross for you. That young man said, 
I began to feel that there was a glimmer of hope for me here. And then the preacher looked at him. He said, young man, I perceive that you're miserable. Young man, look to Jesus. That young man, who we all know as Christians, Charles Spurgeon said, that day I did look to Jesus. And the clouds of my sin rolled away. And at that moment, he knew he was right with God. Possibly the greatest preacher in this world, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was saved on that day because he had a hunger and a thirst to be right with God. What we see here in the Scripture and what moves Spurgeon was a spiritual hunger. No snowstorm could hold back that hunger. He wanted to be right with God. He wanted his sins forgiven. Today, maybe you're like a Charles Spurgeon. You today know how you've sinned against God, and you have a hunger to be right with Him. Can I say that that hunger and thirst can be blessed? Because if you come to the right place, where you can hear where Jesus died on the cross and paid for your sins, you too, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, can look to Jesus and be saved. Oh, my friend, would you be saved today? If you're without Christ, I implore you, as that preacher said, look to Jesus.